two weekends. And we one guy, all he would ever do is shoot. He wouldn't give the ball up, he'd shoot. And we'd always say, pass the Ducci. And the reason we said that was, because back when we were playing, there was a big song called Pass the Ducci by a band called Musical Youth. And from that band, Dennis Seaton and Michael Grant are here today. How you guys doing? Very well, thank you. Well, thanks for having us on your show. Stage of people, if you don't know, my computer went out, so we're restarting. So. <laughs> they don't know that. They so, don't have to give that up. Uh, you know, I like to give it up, so they know, you know, what's going on. Now, I'd, I'd asked you earlier, okay, musically, how did how did it all get started? I know, Michael, tell your story. Okay, so um, I my mother wanted me to be a concert pianist. That was her dream. And uh, I originally started off by playing the organ. So I were playing things like, you know, Toccata and Fugue in D minor by Bach and stuff like that. And I was doing that up until the age of around seven or eight, when my father brought home an album by this guy, probably heard of him called Bob Marley. Now it was the Exodus album. And when I heard that album, I was like, wow, this is the first time I'd heard rhythmic organ. Because up until then, it was not rhythmic. It was just, you know, you just played the organ. Although we'll debate about what's rhythm in a second. But the point being is that was a style that I've never heard. And so I really liked that. And I started playing that. And my mom got really upset with my dad. What have you done? What have you done? But anyway, so I started to play reggae. And still played classical for my mom to keep her happy, but reggae just got into my blood. That was like the album that kind of changed me and changed my life into reggae. And so that's the beginning of my musical career was hearing that Exodus album. And that's what, you know, spurned me into going down the field of reggae and doing classical on the side just to keep my mom happy. Now, Dennis, what was your what was your background in music? So my background in music was from the uh, from the age of eight years old to about eleven, well ten. I used to do uh, theatre. Well, I say theatre, school productions. So the first one I ever did was um, George Severin's Technicolor Dreamcoat, and I ended up singing all the parts. So I sang my part as well as the um, Pharaoh's part because I was Joseph. So, but the Pharaoh couldn't sing, so I had to face the Pharaoh, and he had to well, he had to mime. <laughs> so yeah. Um, that's my background. But then um, Junior and Patrick, well, Junior was my best friend when we was on summer holidays like now. And he was my best friend. And he actually said to me that his dad, his dad was teaching him drums and, his, and Patrick was learning the bass. And I did ask him at the time, can I come and sing? And he said, well, I'll ask my dad. And uh, he did, but I got chucked out. <laughs> <laughs> now, what do you mean you got chucked out? Well... Um, my claim to fame is that I went to the very first musical youth rehearsal, the very first one, which was at uh, Offenham House, and um, 17 was the number. And, uh, yeah, Fred accused me of leaving some sweet rappers in the chair and said, don't come back to rehearsals again. So I had to stand outside <laughs> every time. That was it. So now, how did you end up, How first of all, how did musical youth start? Because, you know, we you, you mentioned, you know, earlier, about you know the record and everything but how did you guys get started as a band so as a band basically um we used to just go play local places clubs and whatever and freddie wake was the lead singer at the time which is patrick and junior's father the guy that chucked Dennis out of the band originally <laughs> anyways yeah so he was basically the lead singer but people had seen the band and said you needed a younger singer so dennis uh so what we did was we did our version of you know we call it 
American Idol today was like a similar thing. We put together an audition, basically, and what my mother made sandwiches and everything else. And we then went and said, okay, to all our school friends and anybody would listen. There was no social media at the time. So it was basically very local and said, look, we're holding auditions. Can you turn up for auditions and let's see who the lead singer will be? And so Dennis turned up for lead, to, to be the lead singer. He done his audition part and then left. And we were like, next. And no one else was there. That was it. One person. So there you go. By default, Dennis is the lead singer of musical youth. The rest of they say, as they say, is history. All history. Exactly. Now, how did you guys first get the chance to record Pass the Ducci? How did that come about? <laughs> right. So um, it was actually a mistake. Was it a mistake? No, it wasn't a mistake. We were doing some live shows and we were supporting Culture Club before everybody knew Culture Club. Hold on, real quick. Where, where were you doing live shows? Because you guys are kids. Like, I mean, where are you going to tell you? Like, exactly. like going to pubs, like, hey, we're you performing. Where were you guys doing? <laughs> so we used to do um, what they call in the UK working men's clubs. So you would call it a, well, a kind of comedy club, is where the, the musicians cut their teeth, you know, like pubs, but frequented by the community. So all the, a lot of the, 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 I say a lot, quite a number of employers had clubs for their employees to go and socialize. So we used to play at the West Indian clubs around the country. So that's where we cut our teeth. And we were playing at upstairs at Ronnie's, Ronnie Scott's in London. And uh, it had the smallest dressing room. Even us yeah. couldn't fit in there all together. <laughs> so two of us could get changed, yeah. come out, then the other two would get changed. And I remember I was going across this walkway, uh, going across the, the dance floor to the toilet. And I saw this guy sitting down. I thought it was a guy. And I, I, it looked, he had these long hair and faces, makeup. And I went back, I looked at him and what? So I went and got the others. And I said, look at him, he's, look at him over there. Anyway. Turns out that guy that was looking at was Boy George. Yeah. <laughs> it was Boy George, and uh, he'd seen us play upstairs at Ronnie Scott's, and uh, invited us to come and support Culture Club at Heaven. Yeah. Now Heaven, we didn't find out until we got there, was the biggest gay club in London, <laughs> and there was about the place was absolutely packed. So the record company, the A and R guy, came down to and he, he came to the gig. And when we performed, because we used to perform it as past the Kutchi, which was the number one reggae song by the Mighty Diamonds at the time. And uh, the Kutchi pipe is a big old bong that the Rastafarians used to pass around. And when we played that song, the audience went absolutely ballistic. They went nuts. So the A&R guy sees this and says to us, you know that song past the Kutchi? Yeah. Is there any way you can change the lyric? <laughs> And we looked at him and went, oh, well, maybe. So what happened? Went to the studio. Right. You want to take it over? Right. All right. Yep. Cool. I'm enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> went to the studio. And back then, you used to do demos of your album for the record companies to have a listen. I mean, it's a, it's a marketing thing, isn't it? So they know what they're selling. Anyway, so we recorded seven songs from the first album, Youth of Today. And the eighth song was two versions of past the Kutchi. So the first one was past the Kutchi. We sang it as past the Kutchi. But then the second one, we just literally went in the, the, the control room and said, what are we going to change this lyric to? And 
we looked at each other and, and I think it was our manager at the yeah. time. He said, well, there's a, we, we, we got a Dutch pot. Yeah. We're Dutch pot. Yeah. And we said, Kutchy, Dutchy. And we just jumped up and down like, yeah. as kids do. Yeah. Very yeah. excited. Yeah. Right. We changed it from Kutchy to Dutchy and just changed it to that. Well, what made, you guys, what made you guys, first of all, choose that song, though? With, with the with the, the marijuana thing because you're young kids. I mean, I know you okay. like reggae. I know you like reggae, and that's fine. And that's me. I smoked pot in high school. I understand. Yeah. But what made you choose that song? Because you probably knew the record was going to go, well, I don't know. We don't want these kids singing about ganja. <laughs> yeah, but at the time, we were singing the biggest reggae because we were like a... Um, a, 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 covers just a covers band so we were singing all of the biggest reggae covers at the time so you couldn't sing be a covers band and not sing that song because at that time that song was a big hit in in, 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 in reggae you know what I'm saying in terms of the reggae culture or whatever so if you're doing cover versions of cover songs you know it'd be like you know doing a set without doing a Taylor Swift or without doing a Beyonce track, or, Beatles. or a Beatles track, yeah. you know, those are the biggest hits at the time. And if you're going to try and entertain people, you're going to sing the biggest songs. And so that's the reason why we sung that song. And, I, you know, and nobody would care unless you become successful, <laughs> which is, uh, which is fortunately what happened. You know, kids can say whatever they want. It's only now you're successful. You're like, whoa, what are they singing about? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And, and also it helped too, because when we changed the words, from Dutchy, from Kutchy to Dutchy, it also, you know, meant conversation started happening because, you know, some of the lyrics, you know, how do you feel when you got no food was fantastic. But, you know, we're passing this Dutchy on the left hand side and we've explained it, it's a cooking pot. But remember, people might have thought you're cooking pot PLT, which is another name for marijuana. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's right. There you go. And Steve, from uh, when I found out um, over this side of the world, they thought we were singing about cooking pot. <laughs> yeah, because the Dutch is a cooking pot. Cooking a smoking pot. It's, right. a cooking pot. <laughs> it's a bomb. They're talking about a bomb. That's right. Exactly. That's right. Yeah, so a, a Dutch pot, yeah. a Dutchy in, in, for us as yeah. West Indians in the UK, yeah. is a, a pot that we cook the food in. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but here. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, Told so, a different meaning. So how, how does it end up on the radio? Because, you know, how does it end up sitting there getting played? Because, once again, you're young kids, you're a young black group. It's not very popular. I mean, it's not people aren't used to it. And we'll get to that about MTV later because you're the first uh, black group to be on MTV, the video. Yeah, and so right. well, well, how did you get on the radio? Because it was, it was something that people aren't used to. And it's not like today where we'll, we'll try anything. Back then in the 80s, I and mean, when we try to say the 80s was a great time, but there are some uptight son of a bitches. That's all I'm saying. Oh, no, no, exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. No. So what happened was, firstly, when I wasn't singing lead, the band recorded a single called Political in General, and that was at Salt Music Workshop. And we had high unemployment at the time. There was three million unemployed. Yeah, unemployed. So, you know, there wasn't much support for the arts. So Salt Music Workshop and Barry... Um, Barry oh, Coleman. Coleman recorded the band, sent the single into John Peel. Now, if you speak to any 80s artist, John Peel was the DJ. Yes. For the, I mean, even the, the lazy A&R guys would sit there, <laughs> call them lazy, they would sit there and listen to what John Peel would play because John Peel played everything. He had autonomy over his show. Yes. That, them days are gone. Long gone. Right? Long gone. So John Peel decides he's going to play political in general. 
the A&R guy hears it, gets in touch, because he tells them the story about these four young guys. Anyway, so John Peel was the first, and then when we released the single, we did. We, we're probably one of the only bands who did two John Peel sessions. Yes. One with Fred singing lead. Yes. And the second with me singing lead. Right. So the the support of John Peel gave us the credibility. Yes. Because back in the eighties, you had to perform. There was yes. no two words about two ways about it. No. It wasn't you know go and mine. You yeah. had to be able to perform. Right. Yeah. So John Peel paid them sessions. Then with some of the TV that we had, that helped push it. Mm-hmm. But as we said, there was only Radio 1, Radio 2, and, and local, well, local, oh, local, oh, local, radio, local yeah, FM yeah. stations. Yeah. Well, it wasn't even FM then, it was, it was medium wave. Medium. And also, Radio 1 was so big because, again, it was the only station countrywide. Everyone else had a license for very small areas. areas so you couldn't go outside of maybe a 10 mile maybe that radius. Do you know what I'm saying? Even the pirate stations were all couldn't go with that big, you know, yeah. you just didn't have a transmitter that big and you couldn't bounce transmitters, obviously. Yeah. So when you got onto Radio 1, you were appealing to virtually the whole country, yeah, whereas right. nowadays, because of the internet, you can appeal to the whole world, but we didn't have that at the time. Yeah. So therefore, getting onto Radio 1 was a big thing, which is why the DJs made so much money, because if you could get your record to a DJ to play, then, you know, so record companies were paying DJs thousands and thousands of dollars and all kinds of perks yeah. they used to get. Because obviously they had world, what not worldwide, but nationwide. nationwide uh, they could get your track nationwide, and if you got on a playlist, whoa! Yeah, now you're talking. Do you know what I'm saying? Because they rotate it. Maybe on the A list, you get like five times a day. On the B list, you'd be like twice a day or whatever. But so you wanted to get on their playlist, on that DJ's playlist. Basically, it was a big thing then. It doesn't exist these days, but that was the thing. Oh, yeah, it was the old payola in, in America got shut down because it was payola. The problem was someone come in with, they come in with a few hundred bucks and an eight ball, and the DJ would there play. You go. And there it, you it was, go. That was the way it worked. Then, then they about. said it was they said it was all organized crime, and America was behind it. So it completely for in the states, it changed the whole record company. Now that's right. Now once one once Pasaducci charted, what was it? How how did it chart? What was the progression? So it started off at 100. When we released it, it started off at 100 or something ridiculous like that, yeah? And um, we were, we put it out and we said, no, we're not going to say anything to anybody because we didn't want to be embarrassed if it didn't, you know, if it didn't go anywhere. You told everybody about this great single you've done. You've got a record deal, but no one, you know, you didn't want to be embarrassed and say, oh, what happened to your record deal? And nothing happened. So it got to 100. And then it started moving up the charts and it got to like 55. In England, we had a program called Top of the Pops, which had a viewing. It was a program that had a viewership of something like 17 million, you know. And so if you could get on Top of the Pops would be your thing. But the, the criteria was you had to be in the top 30 to get onto Top of the Pops. Well, musical youth obviously couldn't get on top of the pops. Top, like 40. top 40. No, it was the top 30 at the time. We changed to the top 40. So um, at the time, we were at 55. We were like, well, we're not going to, it's not going to happen. But you know what? We were still hoping and seeing what would happen. Anyways, to cut a long story short, the following week, it went from like 55 to 26. Now, when it got to 26, that was the first time you can appear on top of the pops. So at 26, we appeared on top of the pops. Well, all of a sudden now, it wasn't just these black kids from England, Birmingham, that were singing. It was like, whoa, we can actually see them. 
So then the whole thing exploded now the following week. People went out and bought records like it was going out of fashion. I mean, it just moved. So it went from 26 to number one. Never happened. People were like, what is going on here? And as Denny said, in those days, it took three weeks in order for you to appear on for us for us to appear on TV. So you want to tell a story from there? Only because of our age. Yeah. So the the educational departments we, we slipped underneath their radar until the single started flying up the charts. Yeah. And to be fair, when we we were recording the first album Youth of Today, and we were driving, we'd get picked up in the taxi from one side of London. And it would take that truck, that driver, two hours to get us to the other side of London, to the studio. And uh, when we were in the back of the taxi, the cab, um, we read in the papers that we were at number seven. So we thought, wow, number seven, that's, that's not bad. Exactly. You know, that's that's pretty good. Yeah. Anyway, we get to the studio uh, about 10 o'clock. Yeah. About half an hour later, we get a call to say, listen, guys, you're at number one. And at that time, you've got to understand, is that. The charts in England used to come out on a Tuesday, Tuesday afternoon. So they obviously counted up the sales from the weekend. Monday, they'd count up the sales and go, which one was selling the most on that on that weekend? We, and we went, no, we're not. We're number seven. We've looked in the papers and that's what it says. So we believe that. Right. Little did we know that they had insider knowledge. Like all record companies do. That this single is flowing up the charts. And uh, the, the A&R guy had to... In fact, who said he was going to batter him? Was it Patrick? Me. Was it you? Yes. So Michael says to him, his name was Charlie. He says, Charlie, if, you, if you're lying, we're going to batter you. That means we're going to beat you up. <laughs> anyway, he says, all right, then go and listen to the radio if you don't believe me. So we had to wait till one o'clock, That's right, one o'clock. for them to announce that we're at number one. Yeah. Now, now what, yeah. what was it like being on top of the Pops? Because that's the biggest you can get. I mean, in England, that's the thing. I mean, everyone knows you're going to change. Everyone sits there, and you got to be nervous because, you know, the whole damn country's watching. It's not like now. Like, the whole country is watching no, you guys know. and your kids. And, that's as I, you know, you probably didn't you didn't care because, you know, if, if it didn't work out, you'd be back at school. But what is it so, like? Were you, were you so, nervous as hell? Were you like, oh, my God, we're going to be millions of people watching us? I, I, I tell you, the truth of the matter is, it even transcended top of the pops. Mm. And what I, the reason I'm saying this is because in those days, if you got a number one record, it was just a number one record. But because it was unprecedented what had happened, we actually made the news as well. Okay. So yeah. we weren't just on top of the pops now. So even if you weren't into music, you knew of musical youth because it was All the news. Yeah. So BBC didn't just... so. You couldn't pay for this kind of promotion. You couldn't because, you know, we've got one national station, the BBC, at the time, and that would cover the whole country. So, you know, now I've got 17 million people watching you on top of the pops, but you've also now got the world kind of watching you because the BBC is a renowned uh, broadcaster. So now it's big news that this band has got a number one single. And so now you can imagine, it's almost like the whole of England are now hearing about this band. Yeah. And so, yeah, at the time, looking back at it, it would, it would have blown my mind. But at the time, we, we couldn't really comprehend what was going on. No. I mean, for, to be honest, we didn't actually get to appear on top of the Pops until late in the year yeah. because of the top. 
we weren't allowed to work for more than 46 days of the year once the education department got involved. So our actual live first appearance was um, Christmas, Christmas, yeah. the Christmas special. Yeah. And that was it. Um, but then, obviously, more regular because the hits kept, kept coming for the UK. Yeah. Um, and we had the best time. Yeah, we had the best time. time. Oh, my gosh. I yeah. mean, you know, yeah. if, if you're going on top of the pops. Yeah. And plus, we didn't really have to perform live. No. That's what I mean. So, so yeah. you guys, you guys, they have, you're, are you in front of an audience? Because I know there was audience and there wasn't. There yeah, two there different versions. Yeah, yeah. So you were yeah, there was an audience. And so how many people are actually in in there the audience is probably about 200 people if that if that yeah. now yeah. are they are they young girls because you're young guys or are they yeah. older people what was the, how do they get the crowd what how do they choose well they, they would apply on they'd apply to the bbc and the yeah. bbc would have a, a, a an open forum a, yeah. an open letting so they'd letting x amount of people and you could come in some people were there as part of the bbc's um crew yeah. in terms of not just the camera crew and the film crew the camera crew and the production team but they were friends of friends. So whenever you saw the audience, it was a proper audience watching you perform the songs. Yeah. That's basically what it was. And they'd film it at the same time. And the BBC did it two ways. You either did it the, the exact time the day before, because it went out on a Thursday night. Yeah. Or you did it live on that night. Yeah. And the practice, the rehearsals was meticulous. Yeah. I mean, it was just down to the finest second. Now, now, tell me about the video, because that's that's when well, that's when I found you. You know, America found you through MTV, and it was just said that's you're the right. first. You, I mean, you guys are before Michael Jackson and Prince for an African American band, and which is amazing yeah. to think that Prince. I mean, you know, but it's just when you think about and Prince was from America. But what was it when you guys? Because I know England was ahead of America in shooting videos. You guys, I know, right. I talk, you guys were shooting, America, vid, England and the UK have been shooting videos forever for music. What was it like shooting the videos? Because it's, it's the song, you probably like, you know, no one's used to being a camera. I've been on a TV show. You're not used to the camera sticking in front of you. You have to start on, stand on your little, they go, don't, don't miss your spot, you know. What was it like shooting the video? Was it a long day? Because usually the videos, that could be like an 18 hour day, but you're youth, so you probably couldn't play, work as long. To be honest, it was a long day, but we never saw it as that. We never ever thought it because we were best. We were mate, we were yeah, friends. That's right, our best friends. And someone wants just to hang out for the day with your friends. That's what you're doing. And we're going to film it. We're going to film it. Yeah. I mean, what they used to make us. I mean, Don Letts, who was the the, 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 um, the director, we were comfortable with Don. Yes. So Don would just say to us, "Look, I need you to do this." Yeah. And if we had to do it again, because obviously, like recording. You have to go back and do it again because it doesn't look right. Gotcha. And back then, they didn't have digital editing. It was physical cut. So we had to keep doing parts, you know, and Don got everything he needed. He had his script. Yeah. You know, we didn't even have a dressing room. We didn't even have a, a, a toilet that we could go. We had to yeah. go. To, we recorded the video in London on Lambeth Bridge next to Lambeth Palace. And you couldn't do that now. No, 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 <laughs> it was no, in the summer holiday. You couldn't do that now. So even the people on the bus who he filmed, that was all spontaneous. That was just people going past, and he filmed it. Yeah. yeah. And we had, again, luckily the weather was with us. Yes. So it wasn't raining. <laughs> you know, but um, no, we had the best time. We just oh, had so much fun. Yeah. Because it was just, what it was life. just, yeah. what, what was we expecting? We just did it. Yeah. And we'd worked with Don with a, with a video before, so yeah. we knew Don. So that yeah. kind of helped. 
And everybody understood. Nobody ever stood there going, why do we have to do this? Why do we have to do no. this? We just got on with it. Yeah. So, so you're on Pop of the Top, uh, top, top of the Pops. You have a number one song. You know, your videos yeah. are on. How is that changing your life? Because you're young, you're young kids. I mean, I'm sure you're sitting there. It's not like if you're 20, you're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get laid every night. You know, you're still young kids. Okay. So what happened? Okay, so one experience uh, I and my parents had personally was when now we are at number one. Now, I'm not at home at the time, but this is the story from my parents. All those kids that we had invited to the audition turned up at my parents' house. So <laughs> telling my mom and my dad, look, John was sick that day and Trevor couldn't make it. And now they're available. So when's the next audition? The audition, because we know that we can do better than Dennis and all of the So this is what they're telling my parents. And my parents are like, the audition is gone. The band is gone. It's already been made. No, no, it's not made. No. I'm telling you, because my son can sing and my daughter can sing. And the reason they didn't turn up, honestly, all of these ridiculous excuses are now knocking on my parents' door. And my parents are trying to explain to them, look, it's finished, it's done. And they were literally arguing with my parents, telling my parents that they need to be in the band. And my parents are like, there's nothing you can do. So that's how it changed from all of a sudden having nobody turn up to everybody now wanting to be part of musical youth. That's the experience I had. I'm sure Dennis will tell you now his experience. Yeah, well, the, the experience for me was basically um, all our friends knowing. And then going back to school and after about three weeks, because we were because we recording the first album, we were out of that bubble of school. We are in the bubble of the limelight of the press but only to a certain point. I mean, now it's, it would just be madness, you know. Um, and we just had to take it in our stride. It wasn't something we planned for. And I, I, my experience is that the, the record company probably had the cheapest number one party ever. Yeah. So they didn't have to get no drink. <laughs> they didn't have to get no girls. No, they didn't no. get no drugs. <laughs> we had Kentucky, McDonald's, yeah. lots of Coke and Fanta. And apple pies, yeah, and that was our that was our parties, and we had to be we had to be off stage by ten thirty. Yeah. <laughs> but didn't you start getting recognized by people when you're walking down the street? Because video is such a strong power. I mean, and and once again, it must be overwhelming for someone yeah. young because you know people are coming up to you and you're like, "Well, I'm not, I'm not supposed to talk to strangers. Who is this? Who is this <laughs> person talking to me? What? How did how did you guys deal with that? Because it's it's something that youth doesn't deal with usually yeah i mean to be fair we supported each other in so much as when we went back to school that was the level of all us that was yeah that was the base point our school friends you know kids kids don't care yeah. <laughs> you know okay. they have a they have a get on with your adults and some of them will take the take the proverbial mm -hmm. as they say take the mick as we call it <laughs> and say your band's rubbish blah 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 others were like wow this is just blowing my mind. Yeah. And we actually decided as a band not to lord it over our friends. Yeah. In terms of, look what we're doing. Look at us. We're going here. They'd actually have to read in the uh, magazines, the, yeah. the music magazines, yeah. of where we'd been that yeah. previous weekend. Yeah. I remember one of my friends going, was you in France on, at the weekend? Yeah. Why didn't you tell us? Yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Most people are going to go to the park and kick a ball on the weekend. <laughs> we were going up there. 
all over Europe, you know, yeah. and, 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 and sometimes the Middle East, the Far East, or whatever. Yeah. So our life was just completely changed, and yeah. it was so different. And how do you say to someone who's going to kick a ball in the local park on a weekend, well, I'm actually going to France. Yeah, I'm going here. It, 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 it's unbelievable. And so I'm flying first class. Yeah, and I'm going that, yeah, that too. And then we're going to hang out at Michael Jackson's house or we're performing with Stevie Wonder or, you know, oh, we've done a summer as well. I mean, I can name all these name dropping and it's not that I'm trying to, you know, load it over. And you can't tell people that because most of the times, you know, if they're in a band, they're going to play at the local pub where we'll be playing at an amphitheater in Los Angeles somewhere. Yeah. It, you couldn't, how do you you know, square that with them and, you know, try to say we So you had to just, you just had to be yourself. That's all you had to be. But what was it like for you being in front of these bigger audiences? I mean, you go from playing, you know, a gay club at Boy George to all of a sudden playing, I mean, it's, it has to be intimidating because I know you don't see all the faces, but you're going out there, I'm sure the energy, but what is that like? Like the first time you guys start hitting the stage and there's a bunch of people cheering for you and I'm sure as soon as you do pass the duchy the place goes nuts I mean how do you how do you keep focused cuz older people get intimidated when that shit happens for younger people it must be very odd no to be fair Steve I mean we we practice 7 days a week you know going to perform was the least of our worries <laughs> you know because we knew what we were doing in terms of the music, yeah. you know, when I say we practice seven days a week, we practice seven days a week. Yeah. Partly because I had to catch up. Yeah. I had eight, 16, 15 months of catching up to do. And then partly because that's what we love doing. We love practicing because that's where we could make our mistakes. In we fact, were... the funny thing is we were rehearsing downstairs and Black Sabbath were rehearsing upstairs. Yeah. <laughs> so he was upstairs rehearsing. Yeah. And we were downstairs rehearsing because we shared the same building, rehearsal building in yeah. Birmingham. Yeah. So Now, what was expected of you when the second album came out? Ooh. Okay. So what, you, what you've got to deal with here, Steve, is you, it, they all talk about it, the second album syndrome. I mean, only experience has told me that your first album is a lifetime's work. The second album and any album preceding that is what's what's happened in your life since the success of the first album. And I think a couple of things. Firstly, the genre of music. You know, we just lost the king of reggae music, Bob Marley. The genre of reggae music around the world was popular to a point. And Bob Marley was the king of reggae music. Everybody else is coming in a poor second, third, fourth or fifth. We've now crash that party you know and i saw things in the press a novelty band we never saw that we just saw ourselves as a reggae band and that was it a reggae band um so the late the record company because it took them by so much surprise and it was such a massive success that they're trying to commercialize it to a point where we almost lost ourselves yeah. with some of the music it was it was us performing but the control terms in terms of what songs were being performed was kind of out of our hands. Totally out of our hands. But then us being... Oh, we were so young at the time. We, we, we were inexperienced. I shouldn't say we all... We had no say. We had no say. Inexperienced. No say. Inexperienced. Yeah. And inexperienced musicians. Yeah. Inexperienced management. Yes. That's part of it. But still, 
looking at the second album, I'm still proud of that second album because there's some monster musicians on that second yeah. album. There's Hawk Orlinski, who played with Rufus and Shaka Khan. Yes. Who played with Rufus. Sorry. Yeah, he wrote Ain't Nobody. Yeah. There's Wawa Watson, yes. you know, who, who was um, Shaft, yeah. the guitarist for Shaft. There's the Sea Wind Horns. There's Donna Summer. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, how, how, did you, wonder what, how did you end up with Donna Summer? Because, you know, right. she at the time... And well, she's still she's a legend. And you know, when oh, disco yeah. when disco blew up in America, everyone knew Donna Summer. Man, it was like you know talking about the hot stuff. Oh, ah. yeah, you yeah. Know, but how did you guys end up? How did that happen? Because that's just something that's random. Because yeah, you have a number one hit, but you're you're young, you're young kids still. You're coming yeah. from reggae. She's coming from disco. How did that whole yeah. thing happen? So what happened was, um, obviously, we've done. Saturday Night Live by now. What and was that like for you guys? Because Saturday Night Live was just a blast. Oh tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me your story from that because I always so, wonder what it's like to do SNL. Right. So Saturday Night Live. Right. We listen to us. We've just come in from recording two videos in Jamaica in February in the hot baking sun. Yeah. We've now gone to New York <laughs> minus eight. Yeah. So we've gone from the oven yeah. to the freezer. Yeah. And We've done MT we've done the MTV, not realizing what's gone on because we actually went into the studios, not realizing that we were going to be in hindsight we were the first black artist to appear on MTV in the in the, in an interview. So then when we do Saturday Night Live, we we've got we love playing live. So for us, this is not a problem. Remember, we rehearse seven days a week. Yes. We've been playing this stuff for yeah. the last two years. Yeah, easily solid. Yeah. We'd, we'd even done the Montreal Jazz Festival, yeah. which was the biggest jazz festival in the world at the time. We headlined that. And um, we get to Saturday Night Live. John Rivers is presenting. Yes. We don't realize how big this show is. Because yes. remember, our, our pinnacle was Top of the Pops. <laughs> so anything else after that is like, oh, just another TV show. Anyway, so John Rivers is presenting. She was beautiful. She was lovely to us. So we do Saturday Night Live. And backstage, we had this uh, this video game. Yeah, that's it. That's the one. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we finish. We finish doing the show, and we're all backstage, and we're playing this game. Gene Simmons comes into our dressing room. Gene Simmons comes into our dressing room, right? Yeah. And he goes, and our, our tour manager goes, "Look, guys, it's Gene." And we looked at it. Hi, Gene. And just carry on playing our game. Just totally ignored it. <laughs> It's not like we could go and hang out with him because yeah. we, we could go out partying with him. <laughs> what? Yes. We're going to a pub? Yeah. yeah. Bring us along. Who are they? Where, where's their Andy? Exactly. <laughs> so we could not go to any clubs or nothing like that. So our, tour, our, tour, um, our crew absolutely loved it because they'd be finished by half past ten. Off they went partying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah but that's, that's Saturday Night Live. So your Saturday Night Live led you because you're on that. So back to Donna Summers. Yes. We're gonna go back to Donna Summer. So, we did. Um, we were out doing um, a, sh a film oh, out yeah. in LA here, yeah. and um, we our manager got the call to say Donna Summer wants to record with the band, but the manager didn't believe it was Donna Summer, so he put the phone down, and they phoned back again and said, "Look, no, 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 we're very serious. Yeah, you know, Donna wants to record a single," and so when it all came together, we were flying back to get back to school. Yes. So we'd flown out to LA on the Thursday. We're supposed to f shoot the film on the Friday. Yeah. 
We met Mr. T. And then what they did was we flew from LA to New York, Hit Factory Studios, yeah. went and met Michael or Martin at the studio. Yeah. He told us about the song. Yeah. Recorded the backing vocals. Yeah. Recorded the vocals and when I did my lead and the backing vocals. And then literally left the studio and went straight to the airport to catch our flight back to the UK so we could get back to school yes. on the Monday. <laughs> and we left it at that. Yeah. And then um, we got the, that's basically how we got to record with Donna. She yeah. never recorded in the studio with us. No. But then when she came to do the video, yeah. she flew she over, over and we met her then. Now, you had mentioned, and I know Stevie Wonder and Eddie Grant had both re written songs for your band. How does that, I mean, that that's like, man, Stevie Wonder is a god. Like, what is that, yeah, I mean, yeah. were you guys aware how big Stevie Wonder is? Oh, I mean, could, yeah, I mean, yeah. in America, like that, the songs, that, that one, I mean, he was just so big. And, you know, growing up and following music. But how did that, how did that happen? And were you guys like, holy shit, Stevie Wonder is writing a song for us. <laughs> so, here's what happened. We were... When we came over, we went and did an, a, an interview with um, at his radio station called KJLH. We were recording the second album at the time. And the lady who was there in the press for, for his station said, look, Stevie in town, do you want to meet him? And we looked at him and said, what? Who wouldn't want to meet Stevie Wonder? And obviously him being 12 when he started and we were young when we started, it all kind of see. And she said, no problem. We'll get, once he's in the studio, we'll phone you. <laughs> We got the phone call at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Steve is in the studio. You need to come down. So they have to wake us up yes. and take us down to the studio. <laughs> yeah. So we get down there. Steve hasn't arrived yet, but we're waiting there and we're all talking. Stevie turns up. And from that moment, we've been friends ever since. Ever since, yeah. You know, he's, he's introduced to all of us and he's listening to us talk because obviously... He knows we're all black, yeah. but he's trying to work out the, the accent because yeah. <laughs> that's what Steve listens for. He listens for the accent and he's just listening and listening. And he says to me, oh, I've written a song for you. If Dennis can beat me at um, air hockey, yeah. uh, I'll give you the song. And um, I never beat him, but he said, <laughs> I'll give you the song anyway. <laughs> a blind man beat me at air hockey. Yeah. So it was, yeah. So, so we had a fantastic time with Steve. And then how about Eddie Grant? Because Eddie Grant was well, huge with Electric Avenue. I mean, everyone remembers that song. That's right. But Mike, Eddie Grant was um, basically, that was supposed to be a match made in heaven. Yeah. Because Eddie started off in the 60s. Yeah. And he was in his, he was an adult. He was in yeah. early 20s. That's right. Uh, early teens, late teens, early 20s. Yeah. When he had his first success. But then, you're right, Electric Avenue was massive here. And... Um, Somebody said for, for the third album. Somebody said, "Well, why don't you get Eddie to produce it?" Yeah. So we went out to Barbados and yeah. recorded some songs, which Eddie wrote and produced, yeah. even though we'd written our own. And it just never worked never out. Worked. It never. It was one of those things that just you know you try and think that a combination would work, but it just never did. Didn't work at all. Um, his idea of what we should be doing and ours were just completely right. different, completely yeah. different. And so the whole thing to me was, I, if I'm going to be honest, it was a disaster. That's the best way I'll put it. I mean, don't get, from, from looking back at it, at the time, you're going to call, like, call it experience, whatever. But if I, you know, as a 54-year-old guy looking back at my career, that was not a good move because we just didn't gel. Do you know what I'm saying? It could have been a good move. But I think Eddie Eddie just wanted to control it all. Yeah. Not give us any input. Yeah. 
And um, that kind of, how, how do you feel? I mean, I'm now 17, 18, and, and you know at 17, you know it all, don't you? Yeah. You know everything. Yeah. <laughs> and at 15, you yeah, know well, everything. I know more than a 17-year-old. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, and it wasn't so much that we didn't enjoy working with Eddie. It just wasn't our music. Yeah. yeah. We knew our music. Yeah. Yeah. If one, if it's one thing we knew, yeah. we knew our music. So when you hear the first album, Youth of Today, never going to give you up. Yeah. You know, Heart, Blood, Heartbreaker, Blind Boy, Mirror Mirror, yeah. Ch Children of Zion. That's us. That, yeah. You know, Air Taxi. Yeah. You know, oh, that's us. That's, um, you know, so you can't, can't hold that back. Yeah. And I think if we had done songs from Eddie, if, if we had done things like Living on the Front Line, that would have been closer to musical you that's sound right than what let's go to the moon which is what he gave us yeah. you know what i'm saying if he had done us we had done he things was looking like for hope, hope joanna would have been good for musical youth because that was the kind of way we we're going but he gave us songs like as i said let's go to the moon which was complete and utter not no, it was just formulated. That's what I'm saying. It, wasn't it was a reggae. It wasn't, it wasn't reggae. For us. No, definitely after so. And so it was a complete disaster. And that's why I'm looking at it now. At the time, you are just talking up to experience, but yeah, it didn't work. So, so what happened? Why'd you get? You guys are young. Why? Why'd you break up? I mean, is it one thing? Well, you start. You're young, and everyone forgets that. You know, bands. I talked to bands who've been together for ten years. You know popular they're older guys and they get on each other's nerves and they're even though they're friends but what i mean for you you're young and it's like all of a sudden you know you're you're 17 18 there's a 15 year old well you know if you want to go hit on girls you want to hit on 17 and 18 year olds not 15 year i mean you might want to hit on 15 year olds as long as as long as you're under 17 it's legal but no what was what what happened what happened to musical youth number three a lot of things you go first so i I turned 18 and I saw all this success, but I was still not happy. Yeah. Um, I became a Christian. So that's the first thing that happened for me. So it all changed. So this, where Musical Youth was my be all and end all, it never became, it was now not that be all and end all. Not that I didn't lo love the guys. And I always wanted to play. I never wanted to go anywhere without Michael Jr., yeah. um, Patrick and Calvin. Um, but then outside influences, and as I said, I've said it before, it was uh, immature management. We didn't really, what, if anybody would have said to us, listen, guys, you need to have a break. You know, you've been in each other's pockets for the last three and a half, four years. And you need to have a break from each other just to reevaluate. Yeah, just but, a holiday. Because remember, as Dennis said, we were practicing seven days a week. So I was seeing Dennis every single day. And he obviously, like anything else, I don't know anybody that you can see every day for, you know, three years. <laughs> You're not going to get fed up of <laughs> vice versa. And so we, when Dennis left, the band then was left with four of us. And Patrick and Junior had drug problems anyways and mental health problems. And now we're seeing it now. And all those things could have been resolved because you see, you know, Prince Harry now talking about mental health and Prince William talking about mental health. And it's a big word now. But at the time, no one knew about your mental health. So, like, I've got my kids now, and I am careful of what they do. I'm worried about their mental health, and I do stuff that makes sure that they're okay. I speak to them, and I give them a break. So even though they go to school every day, I make sure they have holidays. I make sure there are times where I'm like, you know what? If you're not feeling it today, 
we ain't going to do it. You're going to spend a whole day stuck with me, whatever. It is important to do. At the time, there was none of that. And everybody that was involved with music queens didn't care about Dennis or Michael. <laughs> they just cared about how much money they were making. <laughs> so you're meant to hell. To hell with that. You better carry on performing, carry on living together, you know. And so when Dennis left, honestly, it was almost like a breath of fresh air because I'm like, oh, a day I'm not seeing Dennis. But unfortunately, what I didn't realize that it was going to take about 10 years since I'd seen him next. No. And so I didn't see him. I would speak I mean, to him. And he went up and did his thing, which was fine. And I went up and did my thing. And the sad thing was, if I'd only known then what I knew now, I said, you know what, Dennis, you're right. Go away for a year or I'll go away for six months or whatever. And let's meet up and let's do this again. But the management didn't give us that option. The record companies didn't give us that option. No one gave us that option because no one cared about us. All they cared about was the bottom line. Yeah. The record companies were caring about how much money they're making. Okay, we'll move on to the next act. There was no love for the band. So that's no, basically I mean, the to end be fair, of... if you looked at it now, Music Youth was a massive, massive, massive success. Yes. We didn't realise how big it was no. amongst ourselves. Not only that, it was a massive um, financial success yes. for the record company. Yeah. We were, probably one of, day. we were probably one of the only artists in the 80s who were in the black with yeah. the record company because it was a cheap band. Yeah. It was a cheap band. You know, the advance wasn't, wasn't a great deal, no. even though at the time it was seen like a, a big punt. The single just paid for everything. Yeah. You know, still pays for things now. Yeah. And we didn't know that. Yeah. And then management being immature... Record company dropping us as a label. The label let us go. Yeah. So that put us on a backward step. And we weren't looking for the next hit. We just wanted to be. And when I say hit, <laughs> when I say hit, hit song, I should say, I should explain myself more. Hit song. We just wanted to perform. Yeah. And because of the ages, yeah. you know, Michael being 15, Calvin being now 30, we couldn't tour as much as everybody else. Okay. So we remember there was 46 days that we had to work. That's not even once a week. We actually discussed moving out, emigrating here yeah. to be able to perform yeah. more. And Now, you remember Universal at the time, or MCA, MCA, they have an artist roster, so big. So we could have been on any one of those supports, so we could have kept it going, which would have been easy to do. We've got no responsibilities, no family, no kids or whatever. So we could have done that. But unfortunately, the record company weren't looking out for us they're looking out for themselves and that's what i go back to because that's what if that was you know today you know if that's olivia rodriguez or any of these other entertainers they're like okay fine you're going to be supporting taylor swift you're going to be supporting whoever yeah, yeah. and you can put them on those tours and continue to you know grow the act we never had that opportunity because as i said to go back to the management weren't clever enough and the record company weren't clever enough i mean so we're talking about the, the head of mca at the time was irving azoff yeah. Right now, who doesn't who doesn't know Irving Azoff? You know, we went to the Grammys and we're sitting next to Irving and Don King, and Don King had just signed the Jacksons to the Victory Tour, and all the all the music promoters in this country were up in arms because the boxing promoters got the biggest black artist ever yeah. with Michael and the Jackson Five, and they're like, "How did this happen?" Well, there's a there's a guy there called Irving Azoff that made that happen because I don't think Don King could have dealt with that. No. You know. I got a, I got a question. I got a question for you, Dennis. What made you find Christianity at eighteen? Um, firstly, my older brother. That was firstly he became he got saved at a Billy Billy Graham re revival meeting at Villa Park. For oh, wow. 
and then he encouraged me, you know, you, there's more to life than this. And I think that's what probably saves me. You know, to say I got saved, if if it wasn't for the Lord Jesus Christ, maybe, maybe, I might not be here, I can't guarantee it, but I might not have been in this state of mind in terms of what Michael says, mental health, because I was focusing on something else now, not just this. So when I made my decision to step away from the band, it wasn't about the money, because I didn't, you know, I, that was my only income stream, if you look at it and you're yeah, talking exactly. profession, you know, if I'm talking to my kids now, you're going to leave that. That's your only income stream. What, what are you going to do for a living? What you gonna, how are you going to eat? You know, um, my mum was a single parent and she worked nights cleaning trains. So she didn't have, I couldn't rely on my mum. My mum, when I say I couldn't rely on my mum for that support, my mum gave me the physical support, the emotional support. As long as I was happy, that was my mum. I don't care what you do, as long as you're happy, but you're not going to be in this house doing nothing. <laughs> You know, and then my brother wouldn't allow it and my family wouldn't allow it. So, and I think Michael's exactly the same as me. That's right. Exactly the same. So, again, you know, one of the things that I found striking was when Musical Youth had ended and then he said, left, somebody, and I've forgotten what the article was in the, the newspaper wrote, Michael Grant is a has-been. And I'm thinking, I'm 16 years old and I'm a has-been, my career's over. And bearing in mind, a lot of these, you're just leaving school now in England at the time. High school. High school. No, no, it was in junior high. Junior, junior high here. Yeah. So you're just leaving. So you could go on to university, whatever. And they're telling me, your career's over. You know, that's it. Your life's over at 16. And all of that, we go back to this mental health I'm talking about. Imagine what that does to you when everyone else, your kids, your family and your friends and all that, and I say, oh, what is our career going to be? Are we going to be a plumber, electrician, or whatever we're going to do in life? And then they look at you and say, no, sorry, your career's over. You're done. That's it. You know, and at the, they don't realise that you're meant, that, that affected me in a way that I'm looking back now, and it just made me feel like, oh, my God, well, what do I do now? And that was the problem we talk about, as I said, mental health now. And so it was really tough then. And so I went off and did all kinds of different odd jobs here, odd jobs there, because no one told me that I could stay in the music industry and the music industry didn't help me get back in. And I met a friend of mine now called Tony Bean, and he was the one then that introduced me to God. And also he was like a mentor and tried to get me to think differently. And he's still my friend now to this day, you know, we're still great friends. And in fact, I'm the godfather to his two kids. But the point I'm saying is, is that that's what saved me. Somebody coming in, and saying, look, there is more to life than music. There is more to life than, you know, just you. There's an existence, there's God. And that saved me. And I wish I could express that to the other members of the band. Because at the time, they all went up and we all went up and did our own thing. And fortunately, tragedy stopped two members, Patrick and um, Denny. Patrick and Denny. Patrick and Junior. <laughs> Sorry. And then that, looking back at it again, as I said, it was just no guidance and no one caring you know to say hey listen guys let's go down this path we can help you no no what made you after all that you went through, what made you guys eventually get back together honestly because, okay. yeah money no. <laughs> i i i decided that the solo career that i had was so long you couldn't hear it so we i went back to birmingham and um put my band put a band together and i called it xmy and uh I kept saying to Michael, listen, you know, come and come and come and join the band and you know, see how you feel about it. And just just come and play with the band. And 
this has been on for about 10 years. Yeah, exactly. Just come and play. Just yeah. come and play. So one day he says, okay, then. Comes to rehearsals. We do a, a set. Yeah. Michael's text, I mean, to be fair, is like, when, when, you, when you practiced as much as we practiced, coming to play your own songs is like nothing. Yeah. You know, it's like water off a duck's back. Absolutely. It's second nature. So then we go down to a gig in Guernsey. Guernsey. And we do the whole weekend. Yeah. Oh and we finish God. the weekend. And I go to Michael, here's your money. And he looks at me and goes, what? Yeah. <laughs> here's, your, here's your money. What? I got paid. Because yeah. we never used to see money after the gigs. Never, <laughs> never got paid. I've been tours all over the world. Never, never seen, got paid. You know, never seen a penny. Anyway, so that was just the basic economics. And Michael yeah. says, wow, wow, I'm coming back. Yeah. So that, that's basically what happened. Yeah. You know. Well, now you're on the uh, Lost 80s Live. Now, yes. how, how did that come about? Because that's a great show. I went to the one, I went to one, they never come on the East Coast. Before the pandemic, yeah. I went to one in Philly. And uh, it was great because there's, there's a bunch of bands, all been on my show, but they're just songs we remember. And, and it's such, the 80s have such a special part. I went to a college reunion a while ago. Everyone's like, oh, the 80s, the 80s, the 80s. And now they say, the 80s were great. It was a very great part of my life. I don't want to go back there. Like some people, are like the only reason maybe if I'm bald now, so I go back and get my hair. But I don't want to sit there. And it was a great part. But the, they were such a influential, I'd say, to me growing up and who I am. So when Lost Eighties came along, did you guys just jump on it? Were you excited, or how did they find you, and what happened? Well, so um, there's a guy, that's a friend of mine named Dave. Firstly, what happened was is uh, I got a contact from a guy named Dave Salas, and um, I went and did it. And Michael had just moved to Canada at the time, so he couldn't travel anywhere because he had to stay. Yeah. And uh, I went and did a, 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 it was called the Great American Small Cat Festival in 2018 with Snoop. <laughs> so it's 25 years of the Great American Small Cat Festival. And uh, I went and did this, I went and did Dutchie. I did a half, of course, you know, got a pickup band, got another keyboard player with me. And then I got a call from Dave again saying, look, this guy's got this production called Lost 80s. Lost 80s Live. Would you be interested in doing it? Now, I'd already started on the 80s circuit in in England, you know, because it's a big thing in the UK and in Europe and Australia. But they didn't usually call us. They don't have, they didn't have reggae bands on, even though some of the reggae bands that, you know, very successful, they didn't call us. And I just started doing them. And I thought, why not? So come out, and uh, I did the first time I came out was 2019, and did three shows, and had the best time, because I knew the format, you know, and the the, the, the a lot of the artists that are on there are either English expatriates, <laughs> or they've flown over from England. So the likes of Flock of Seagulls, they're from the northwest. That's Liverpool. Then you got Wang Chung again from the north, you know. Um, Bow Wow Wad, you know, Annabella's from London. Um, so, and then on this one, we got last year I was supposed to do it, but there's uh, there's complications with health and stuff. So, the beat was the well, it's the English beat here. So, Dave Wakeling, he's from Birmingham. So, I was so, yeah, because <laughs> the first time I went to a live gig, it was seeing musical youth supporting the beat in England. So, you know, just to see Dave. And the last time I saw Dave, I was actually here when I was 21 because I lived in Los Angeles when I was 20. Spent my 21st birthday up there in um, uh, La Brea. <laughs> La Cienega and La Brea at uh, 
the uh, Franklin Franklin Hotel. Okay. Where all the musicians came in, and uh, I saw Dave, and I haven't seen him since. So it's kind of wow. So that's how the Lost Eighties came in, came about. So Rob Warren, who runs Lost Eighties, like he said, look, I'm doing I'm doing my last last one next year. This is this one. You know, I really want you on it. So this this has been in the planning for the last year. <laughs> you know, um, because trying to get visas and your government is not easy. No. <laughs> now, is this is this your first one, Michael, of the Lost Eighties? Yes, yeah, my first one, my first one, and I hope it's not my last one. So I'm hoping that we can find another promoter that we can really, do something. To be fair, we only ever did shows as musical youth. The original five we did. Shows in New York, and we used we always used to do Stephen. This never used to happen for other artists. We used to do a matinee show for the under under sixteens or under eighteens, and we used to do a, another show on the evening for the for the older 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 people. So we used to do two shows in one day. I never know how much we got. <laughs> Probably not that nothing. Now here sounds this may sound like a weird question. You're older now. Your voices yeah. are your voices are different. How do you yeah. adjust? Like, because, you know, do you sit there and say, I'm going to try to hit a certain note that well, it's hard? Or do you just say, I'm going to sing? And how would that fan like it? You love the song. Because <laughs> I, I saw what's no, no, no. uh, Paul Stanley. Paul Stanley said, my my voice may sound different, but I'm 70 now. He goes, I'm not going to sound like I was 38. But how do you, how do, you do it? I was lucky because my voice broke at 14. So when I recorded the single, I was already my voice had already broken. So I still sing the songs in the original keys that they're in. Yeah, the only part I don't do really now is Calvin's part, yeah. which I, I can do Calvin's part, but it doesn't sound like Calvin. So we've just added a little production thing that we can, you know, make it work, and it does work when yeah. you play live. Well, and also, I'm playing keyboards. Piano is going to change. You know, I'm lucky I can play the same key, the same notes. From now until eternity. Now, now this is know. this is for Dennis because you, you've done the last like, Lost Eighties. What is it like when you see all these people? They know the words. It's yeah. been since '82. They still remember you, so it has to make you feel amazing because you've made a difference. There's people who have memories. I remember from, you know, playing basketball in San Pasquale. I remember seeing the video and we would dance, you know, and, you know, something like a bunch of white kids from New Jersey dancing the reggae. Okay. You haven't seen anything till you've seen that. But what, what is it? What, what goes through your mind when you look into the crowd and you see all these people and they're, they're jiving, they're, they're, you're, they're oh, with they you. It. It's, 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 it's the best thing. Yeah. Because yeah, it takes yeah. them back. It's something somebody told me about recording. What they said to me was, you're actually capturing time. You're capturing time. And it's not a visual thing. It's a, it's a, just a, you're plucking it out of the air and you're just capturing them. As soon as they hear, this generation, it, everybody goes absolute nuts. And in the UK, we've got a video, we've got a video show that we run with the, with the songs now. Because I decided, you know what, it's about time we, we actually showed the videos. Yeah. And I can look, like when the videos come up, I can tell when people go, ah, because there's me at 15. <laughs> and there's me at 56. And I actually say to them, before, after. <laughs> you know, that's how you'll end up if you do what I do. But luckily for me, as I said, it's, um, it, it's, it's the most fun, you know, because people just lose it. 
don't know why they lose it. And these are adults, you know. These are highly paid professionals, some of them. You know, so it's it's I, it's yeah, a blast. I I think so too. And I what I what I find humbling though is that without being disrespectful to anybody, is that here's these five kids from Birmingham, England, and to have made an impact like we did. You know, so someone like yourself can say, you know what, I know that song. You're living on the other side of the world. You're living on, you know, there's an ocean between us, you know. And here I am today and you're saying, yeah, when that song came out, I know it. Millions and millions of songs have been released. Billions maybe have been released since time began. So to you, for me to have had a song where, you know, it had such an impact because, as you know, songs released all the time by famous people that, you know, and some of them never make it. So to be able to say, you know, I've done something on the planet where the local guy in a grocery store, you can go up to him and say, do you know Michael Grant? And he'll say no. But if you say, have you heard the song Pastor Dutchie? Nine times out of ten, you'll say, yeah, I remember that song. If they're up a certain age. Well, hold on a minute because now we've got stranger things. Yeah, stranger, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, do you get what I'm saying? So, all of a sudden, people are like, I know that song. I grew up on that song. I, and, and, and the phenomenon that's happened for me is humbling. So, as I said, you know, just somebody in a local grocery store that's or somebody that's a DJ like yourself, yeah. to know what I, to know and say, hey, you know what? I know that band and I know where I was and what I was doing. You were playing basketball. And so you've got a history with that song. I'm totally humbled because when we were doing that at a time, we never thought someone like yourself on the other side would say, yeah, at the time that song came out, I was playing basketball and then this guy wouldn't pass the ball and we would say, pass the ball, pass the duchy. That's what I'm saying. That, you've got a story and that's humbling because, you know, that to me is the most the greatest thing that could have ever happened and the most humbling thing that you can have a story with this song that was written in another country and by another time with another genre of music. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I got one final question. For each of you, answer it separately. We'll start with you, Michael. During, in your time with Musical Youth, what was, would you say, the highlight of your career with Musical Youth? Oh, my gosh. I think, honestly, the highlight is now, believe it or not, because of all the things that have happened, if you had said to me, and this is the thing is why it's the highlight now, at the time, I remember doing Pasadochi with Dave in the studio, and if you had said to me, Michael, 40 years later, you're going to be sitting with your best friend doing this, I would have, listen, I'd have given you my right hand and maybe a couple of my left toes. Seriously, but the point is, can you imagine you saying to somebody or me saying to you 40 years later, you're still going to be hanging out doing this song with your friend? Who wouldn't take that? Who wouldn't take that as a highlight? You know, yes, meeting Michael Jackson, yes, Stevie Wonder, yeah, you know, going to the famous places, meeting all these famous people, eating all of this great food is great, and those are the highlights, but. Humbly, I'm saying, just hanging out with my mate who I've gone to school with. It's almost like, you know, people always say, you know, you never marry the first person you're with because you'll change, they'll change and you move on. So you're never dating school. You're waiting till you get a bit older. But it's like a school romance that's continuing to this day. <laughs> and I'm loving it. So, yeah, the highlight is today I'm still doing this with my best mate. That's for me. And how about you, Dennis? For me... Yeah, to, I think the Grammy Awards was the one for me. 
because to say that you've been on that red carpet and also you think of the genre of music that we performed reggae wasn't known then it was known to a point they never even had a number they never even had a section in the grammys for reggae you know that's that and you think about you know the grammy awards in terms of world music and your pinnacle there's certain artists across the uk who've never been nominated for a grammy but they've had a great career yeah but i can actually say grammy nominated where they can't and then as michael said i'm still here performing and it's Still not the be all and end all of life, but it's still the best. Oh God, yeah, still yeah. the best. Yeah, we're you both know. family men. We're both married, kids, whatever. Yeah. But to able to say, you know what, this is my best friend that I had from school. Because you know, a lot of people come and go. I'm sure you've had loads of friends like I have that you don't see anymore, you don't hear from anymore, whatever. But to say, you know what, me and this guy grew up together, and we're still here today. What more could you want out of life? We grew up on TV. Exactly. <laughs> You know, guys, I, I want to thank you so much for coming on. This was great. Um, people, go check them out. Go check out Musical. You, uh, the Lost 80s Live. You can go to lost80slive.com. They have a bunch of shows coming up. Um, yeah. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 965 episodes. You can email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. Uh, Twitter at coopertalk. Instagram at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time. Yeah.